Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, and welcome back to the Weekly Bunker Roundtable. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Coming up on today's show, the latest developments from Ukraine. Has Putin made a tragic miscalculation? Has the Ukraine crisis ushered in a new era of the EU as a more muscular military power? And pick your propaganda. Should we be banning outlets like Russia today or hold fast to pluralism? All that and more in this week's Bunker. Remember, you can help us keep providing top-quality podcasts six days a week by supporting us on Patreon. You can sign up for as little as £2 a month. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the link in the show notes. This week, it felt frivolous to have a split focus or try to make light of the news, so we are devoting the entire podcast to different aspects of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. With that, let's meet today's panel. First up, hello to the Atlantic staff writer, Yasmin Serhan. Hello, Yasmin. Hi, Alex. We also have former Labour Party advisor and Times Radio host Aisha Hazarika. Hello, Aisha. Hello. And completing our panel is former diplomat Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. Hello. Right, let's get right into it. After weeks of a major build-up of Russian forces on the Ukrainian border and Kremlin claims that they were just engaged in planned exercises, last Wednesday... Vladimir Putin ordered his troops to invade Ukraine. Despite what some had expected, the attack was not a push to take more territory in the east or to create a land bridge to Crimea, but a full-out assault along the principles of the deep strike doctrine, fast-moving columns along different axes aiming to quickly encircle enemy forces. Speed is of the essence with such a military move, as your offensive units are out on a limb and your logistics corridors exposed. It's fair to say that whatever the outcome, it has not gone as planned. Arthur, it's clear to me that several aspects of this conflict have taken Putin by surprise. The level and zeal of resistance, the strength and unity of Western allies, the effectiveness of Zelensky as an international statesman, is his position recoverable, do you think? I think the jury's out on that. I've heard people say that they think that Putin can't win this war, he can't take Kiev because ultimately the Russian forces aren't willing to carry out the sorts of war crime-type activities that would make that necessary. And therefore, if he can't take Kiev, he can't win the war. And if he can't win the war, he's done for. The alternative interpretation is that at some point in the next couple of days, maybe even less time than that, Putin will authorise the use of very indiscriminate weapons, which will effectively reduce the capital city to rubble. 
whether or not Putin survives as Russian leader from what has clearly been a very unsuccessful war, and we haven't even started talking about the impacts, the economic impacts, the the incredibly powerful sanctions and so on, uh, remains to be seen. But the one thing I would say is that he's surrounded by people who are as committed as he is to the current system. So I don't think it's a case of you could hope that he would be shoved aside. There's a whole ruling clique that would need to go. Mm. Um, Yasmin, Putin is, I think, clearly worried about this. There's been internet blackouts uh, in Russia, ban of videos and photographs, an escalating rhetoric, the threat of nuclear weapons, all of these things, in my mind, point not to strength, but to a lack of confidence. As Arthur was saying, is a humiliated Putin even more dangerous than a victorious Putin? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, even just, you know, having listened to Putin's speeches in the run-up to the invasion, I thought it was pretty abundantly clear that this was a leader who was speaking primarily out of anger. Um, Someone who, you know, was seeking to, in a way, kind of reverse what he saw as, as humiliations that his country has faced from the great catastrophe of the Soviet Union's collapse to having to deal with kind of an expansionist NATO on its border, um, you know, you very much get the impression that this is not a leader who is who who is acting, I think, very much on emotion. And, and we've seen where that's led us, right? But but even just to yet yeah, to, to your point, to get a sense of of kind of how Putin is thinking. I mean, you only really have to look at some of the things that are coming out of Russian state TV right now. Um, You know, talks of nuclear submarines that can destroy the US and NATO, you know, kind of framing the whole situation as citizens of Ukraine are welcoming Russian troops as liberators. I mean, it's all nonsense, but I think it very much speaks to this desire to control the narrative and to make it seem that a war that he perhaps thought would be a lot easier mask the fact that it's actually um, been quite difficult. Mm. What do you make of Biden's strategic silence over the weekend, especially given the the nuclear threat that was made? Do you think it was an attempt to de-escalate by not engaging, or was it actually a very effective way of throwing shade? It could easily be both. I mean, I think that the Biden administration did condemn Putin's decision to place um, Russia's nuclear deterrence uh, forces on high alert on Sunday. And and they did express um, some tentative support for the talks that are currently ongoing between the Russians and the Ukrainians um, on the Ukraine-Belarusian border. That said, you know, I think there probably is a very strong desire not to sort of use the kind of provocative rhetoric that could potentially get a rise out of Putin or cause another reaction, right? Because, mm. you know, talk, talk of nuclear weapons is, is understandably quite dangerous. And, and I think there probably is a desire not to have any sort of miscalculations. And, you know, at mm. the end of the day, I mean, obviously, in a lot of Putin's statements, you know, yes, he talks about NATO. Yes, he talks about Russia's historic ties to Ukraine. But he talks a lot about the United States and a lot about, you know, the kind of the U.S.'s sort of place in the world and 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 I think he probably would very much desire a sort of war of words with the United States. You know, a lot of Russian state TV is kind of talking about the U.S. as well, even though obviously besides the fact that they're imposing sanctions and supporting the Ukrainians, they are not part of this war. So I think Putin would probably very much like to make it a, a war with the U.S., but I, I think they're, they're trying to resist that, I, I would imagine, mm-hmm. as much as possible. 
Aisha, um, Dr. Mike Martin, who is a sort of war expert, his uh, uh, Twitter feed, uh, his recent threads have been very, very interesting. He says that now is the time for the West to lift its eyes to the horizon. Are Western leaders starting to think about how to enable Putin to climb down? This is clearly a gamble that hasn't worked out as he wanted, but how do we stop that dangerous last roll of the dice? I think it's really difficult um, because I think we have to be very mindful of our very understandable and well-meaning optimism bias. We are all massively invested in President Zelensky, his incredible sort of leadership, the courage of the Ukrainian people and the, the leadership, their MPs. And of course, we're also very encouraged by those incredibly brave people in Russia who are speaking out against uh, President Putin. But I do detect a, a kind of narrative emerging, which again, I hope it's true, but I fear it's very naive, which is, hey, Putin's just looking at all of this and, you know, he's looking at the fact that the EU have come together and NATO's been very strong and there's this cultural and sporting and economic isolation that's going on and he'll go, oh, and he'll look at some of the memes and he'll be like, oh, do you know what? I'm going to step back. No, (laughs) history tells us that this man is very ruthless. He's very calculating. There is a narrative going around that he's sort of lost his marbles and there there might be a certain element of, of that. But I think we have to be very, very clear that this is somebody who I have no doubt that if he is humiliated, if he is seen to be underperforming, and that's very true. The narrative is that the Ukrainians have overperformed and that Russia has underperformed. I am worried that he will do something very brutal, very bloody, involving you know chemical weapons or weapons of mass destruction. We're hearing about these terrifying um you know sort of weapons that he's got his hands on and then i think we're in a very 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 frightening situation because even if that happens i don't know if nato will still want to you know cross their line for for understandable reasons the question i guess is how many fronts can he battle on you know there have been protests big protests in loads of russian cities with numerous arrests made we are seeing the beginning of protests in belarus again kazakhstan has refused a russian request for support which is quite extraordinary considering it is a sort of friendly regime his oligarch allies are estimated to have lost close to 40 billion dollars in wealth in the few days since the invasion I mean, is there an optimistic version of events? Might we dare to hope for a post-Putin Russia? Again, I don't want to kill the vibe shift, but I just think we shouldn't be we shouldn't let our optimism bias and um, cloud our very cool-headed judgment. I think there is a lot of discomfort and disquiet with Russia, but we shouldn't kid ourselves. You know, there's a reason why this person has been a dictator for this amount of time. We know that there's very, very strict crackdowns on people. Some of the Russian MPs that have been speaking out, they're now looking at sort of decades in prison. I mean, I hope that, that change comes, but remember, Putin will have set up 
a structure. He, he knows this will have been coming. He has set up a structure where he is very protected by, by other people who have quite a lot mm. to, to lose. The other point about Belarus, missiles were fired from Belarus yesterday afternoon while I was on air. And I actually think Belarus is absolutely up to their neck in this as well. I mean, I think the EU has put sanctions on Belarus. I think the rest of the West should absolutely be doing the same. Arthur, one of the most apparently surprising aspects of this has been the conspicuous lack of Chinese support. And I say apparently surprising because some days ago I spoke to Cindy Yu about this. We did a daily on all aspects uh, of China right now. And her view is that the informal Russia-China pact is actually fairly superficial and fragile, that Russia has a huge depopulation problem. And the notion of its managing to keep vast, barely inhabited, resource-rich Northeast Asian regions long-term in the face of a burgeoning China is is by no means assured. What do you make of China's stance? Is that a big tectonic shift? It's not so much a shift, actually, as China sticking to its uh, sort of long-held position. China, like all countries, all countries are exceptionalist. China is exceptionally exceptionalist. And in this regard, what I mean is that, for example, a lot of people have said, well, China will look at what's happening in Ukraine and it will that will re- affect how it deals with Taiwan. China sees Taiwan as being completely different. Now, we as outsiders might say there's an analogy there, but they won't accept the analogy. China will say Taiwan is part of China. At some point, we may take the steps to regularize that situation. Mm. On the other hand, Ukraine and Russia are separate countries. Russia recognized Ukraine's independence. You know, th- these are not comparable. Similarly, I think that um, China uh, is always very reluctant to get involved where it doesn't have direct skin in the game. So China won't support Russia publicly, nor is it going to go all in on any kind of sanctions or that kind of thing. They're very comfortable sitting back, letting Russia dig a hole for itself. Now, of course, China has an advantage at the end of all of this. As a result of what Russia's doing, Russia's markets in the West are disappearing. So China is now Russia's key trading partner, which means that China has much more opportunity to push a much harder bargain. So I think Mm. in a weird way, uh, China, by not getting involved, uh, it, it has a lot of upsides. The, the West yeah. feels relieved. It might think that China's doing the right thing, if, if, if one can say that. Uh, but at the same time, it knows that in the medium term, Russia's going to be more, not less dependent on China economically. Mm. Why invade Siberia if you can buy Siberia? Yeah, perfectly put. Aisha, the Kremlin blamed its escalating nuclear threats directly on Liz Truss's comments that she would be abs- she would absolutely support Brits going to Ukraine to join the fight. I mean, we know everything that issues forth from the Kremlinist propaganda, and this is a flimsy excuse. But at such a sensitive time, should the UK have such loose lips? Well, I mean, that's basically saying, hey, should the UK have this government? And we have the government, we have, you know, we can't change that. I think I'm no fan of, you know, Liz Truss and, you know, she's sort of doing her Instagram, you know, selfie tour of, 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 you know, Eastern Europe at the moment. But I do think, you know, it is ridiculous that President 
Putin starts using the threat of nuclear war because of something that Liz Truss says. I mean, the idea that Liz Truss is some huge, you know, colossus on the international stage, I mean, it's just ridiculous. You know, to me, it it kind of smacked of when the foreign minister was incredibly rude to her when uh, she went for her visit to to Moscow. And I, I mean, I'm no fan of Liz Truss, but I do think we have slightly got to kind of take back it take a step back and say, is this, are we, are, are we seriously saying the nuclear war is all kind of Liz Truss's fault? Um, I think we have to be aware that disinformation division is very much part of the, the toolkit that, that the Russians have. I mean, Liz Truss, though, I have to say, will absolutely be be loving this. I mean, this will be a massive boost to the to the In Liz We Trust campaign uh, to take over from Boris Johnson, because for her to look like she is the woman that has gotten under the skin of this sort of psychotic dictator, that's just going to fuel her sort of Thatcher complex. So I think it's a big win for Liz Truss. Mm, interesting. Um, Yasmin, Another surprising aspect of this entire crisis, at least to me, has been the strength of the economic sanctions. I mean, we all rolled our eyes a little bit when when the West threatened them before the invasion, but they have been deep and radical and cutting. Is this shift a practical one or an ideological one? What I mean is, has the world finally woken up to the notion it can't keep doing business with dictators? Or will this be just a limited exception? I mean, you're absolutely right that the impact of this has been extraordinary. I mean, Putin has effectively like single-handedly tanked the ruble, which, uh, you know, last I checked, has plunged to a record low of being less than one US cent in value, which I think was the consequence of, of some Russian banks uh, being cut off from access to yeah, yeah. global for, banks. For context, uh, you're absolutely right. It would cost you, right now, it would cost you 102 rubles to buy a dollar. And two weeks ago, it, you could buy a dollar with 75 rubles. So right, yeah. Just that's a quite now. a shift, yeah. <laughs> It is, yeah, and it's and you know my colleague David from um, when writing about the the sanctions from both the U.S. and the EU against the Russian central bank, he described them as being the financial equivalent of a nuclear strike, um, which I recognize now probably not the kind of language that we want to throw around too loosely, but but you know I think it really does speak to kind of the the really damaging impact. That, that this has had. Now, as for whether this is kind of sort of a new normal, I, I don't really know. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that, you know, Russia's economy is, I think, roughly the size of Spain is the comparison that I've been seeing most often. Mm. I mean, this is mm. a, a pretty small comedy, economy. And whilst we've seen that, you know, say, imposing certain sanctions, like even, you know, the impact that it could have on our own energy, you know, supplies here in Europe, things like that. I mean, it's not like these dif- these decisions were were not difficult um, for, for the West to take. But, you know, imagine trying to apply the same kind of measures against a, a China or another kind of, you know, huge economic yeah. power. I don't necessarily see that happening in the same way. And look, it took a lot. It took a lot to happen for the West and, and principally, you know, Europe and, and the US to to come to to an agreement on on sort of the, the kind of really severe measures that they were going to take, right? So, you know, I, I think it's kind of a desperate times call for desperate measures scenario. I don't necessarily know if if we're going to, if we should expect or, or be as optimistic to hope that, um, you know, this is the start of of the world uh, taking, you know, mm. taking dictators more seriously. Arthur, 
Russian and Ukrainian diplomatic delegations are meeting near the Belarusian border as we record this. Um, do you think there is a diplomatic exit yet? Or is this simply both parties looking forward to the future and being able to claim, look, we tried? I think that's right. The latest I have is that the, the, these talks have finished for today. You won't be surprised to learn that there's been no substantial developments. I think it was important for Ukraine to show that they're open to a discussion. And uh, Russia probably, under some international pressure, you might say that they're, they're indifferent to this, but I think no side wants to, wants to show that they're unwilling to sort of go through the motions. But I think that's what is happening. They are going through the motions in the same time as the talks happening, Russia escalated indiscriminate attacks on civilian targets in two major cities. So I think that tells us all we need to know. Where do you think this goes in the next few days? I mean, obviously, massive caveats, but what's the feeling in your waters? I still think it's most likely that Putin will authorise the use of some very uh, heavy and indiscriminate military tactics on major population centres. I don't think he can afford not to take Kiev. And so sadly, I think that's where it's headed. But there is an alternative version where the Russian military, for a mixture of a lack of desire to do so, but also a continuation of what we've seen in the last few days, which is frankly a, a military system that is not working together in a professional way, there is a possibility that it just doesn't happen and the Russian advance kind of loses momentum. If you're wondering what you can do to help, we have dropped a link with several charities in the show notes. Our thoughts are with the ordinary people on all sides caught in Putin's madness. Before the invasion began, Putin was quite explicit in his objectives. He wanted a redesign of the European security order. Well, he seems to have got his wish, albeit every single aspect of the redesign has gone precisely the opposite way to how he would wish it. NATO is united in refusing to appease. Ukraine is more cohesive and resolute as a country than at any time. Zelensky has won every single aspect of the information war. China is silent. Russia is in financial and democratic turmoil. And perhaps most surprising of all, after a slow start, the EU, both at member state and collectively, has really found its mojo and stepped up. Yasmin, there have been several tectonic shifts. First of all, Germany. Talk about speaking quietly and carrying a large stick. Aspects of its foreign and defense policy, which a week ago seemed like central tenets, have been turned on their heads. Has this been forced by circumstances, or is the new Chancellor Schultz grasping an opportunity to make his mark and occupy the the sort of strong and defence ground that is usually unreachable for a centre-left coalition. I do think Schultz has done this, but, but I cannot imagine that these kind of changes would have been made. I mean, I think, frankly, they, they took a lot of even German observers by surprise, right? I mean, it is quite extraordinary that the country has effectively overturned decades of central security policy, as you described yeah. it, you know, in, in one stroke, really. This isn't something that 
I really think would have happened if the crisis in Ukraine hadn't emerged. I mean, I was in Germany during the election back in September. And so much of Schultz's campaign was really about continuity. I mean, this is someone who effectively pledged to be the next Merkel. So, you know, no one in Germany was talking about spending more on on, on defense um, and sort of these other kind of really longstanding asks. But I think it, it clearly took an invasion of a sovereign nation nearby and threats of a nuclear attack for Germany to really switch tack. And to Schultz's credit, you know, once he decided to do this, he he did it quickly. You know, he announced that Germany would increase its military spending to more than 2% mm. of the country's economic output, which I think, as we all know, was a, was a kind of a huge demand for a long time of Germany and, and from NATO. And and I believe he did that kind of with an immediate one-off investment of 100 yep. billion euros. Um, he's also announced further steps to reduce Germany's reliance on Russian energy. You know, we know that Nord Stream 2 is now off the table. You know, it's hard to think that just a few weeks ago, they were offering Ukraine no more than 5,000 helmets. Hmm. But here we are. Hmm. Uh, Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock of the Green Party, extraordinarily, declared that the rules that we have set ourselves must not take us away from our responsibility. If our world is a different one, then our policy must also be different, end quote. Arguably, one of Zelensky's triumphs has been to frame this in a way that allows usually dovish Western liberals to throw their weight behind force. Could this mark a permanent shift? Yeah, I mean, if this crisis offers any lessons, I think it's that those who wish to undermine democracy rarely stay within their own borders. And and I think Zelensky has done quite an incredible job of sort of, you know, really framing this fight as kind of the front line between democracy and autocracy and sort of making the case for why this is defeating sort of Putin's expansionism is is in the interest not just of Ukrainians who who, you know, obviously desire to have it, you know, the right to self-determination in a country, mm. but also to Western democracies everywhere who don't want to be seen to be turning a blind eye to a leader just kind of unilaterally saying that he gets to decide what is rightfully a state and what is not. Um, In that respect, it's been quite incredible um, to see just how quickly the world can can really unite together in defense of like, you know, principles of democracy and, and freedom. I I think that, I think it is worth noting too, though, however, that I've seen a a lot of common you know, supportive of Ukraine, but like noting how when it comes to kind of military occupations, conflicts elsewhere, that, you know, the world isn't always as responsive. I I was speaking specifically, you know, a lot of Palestinians in particular on Twitter talking about like, wait, hold on, the world can actually respond to military occupation and and, and, (laughs) speak with one voice. Um, And obviously, that that is a different conflict with with its own context. And that isn't to say that these two are the same. But I add that to sort of caveat that whether this well, it, is a permanent it, it shift. Might be, yeah. It might be that this revitalizes those sorts of conversations as well, as well, which would be a very good thing. But he just seems to have been able to very elegantly tap into a World War II narrative that is always in the background of Europeans' minds to say, you know, actually responding to force with force is not just for right-wing hawks. It is appropriate uh, for liberals in order to mm. defend liberalism. Aisha, f- France has long wanted the EU to become a more muscular entity in terms of a coordinated defence. Uh, but after being quite prominent in the diplomatic effort pre-invasion, Macron has retreated slightly and, and he's allowed 
Schultz and von der Leyen and Michel to do the, the tough talking. How, how might this play in the coming presidential election, do you think, given Zemmour and Le Pen's historically more Russophile status? I don't think that most people in France will be taking a, a terribly pro-Russia stance, but I do agree with you that I think he did lose some base um, in, in the early stages of this. You know, he very much put himself front and centre. He was going to be mm. the guy to get this um, deal across the line. He was going to get. The, he was going to be the guy to, to to move sort of Putin away from from the brink. I think, to be fair a lot of European leaders have sort of taken it in turns to get a, a, a kicking over their, their stance on this. I mean, Germany, we are all rightly praising Germany now, but, you know, Germany did take a while to get into the right place. It is absolutely in the right place now, but, you know, a lot of people have kind of said that actually Germany has been slightly appeasing of, of, of Russia over, you know, recent years and, and decades. You know, our own country, Britain, was was looked on pretty poorly at the beginning of last week over its um, kind of very weak sanctions. They've now sort of tightened up. But I think what I think is interesting is that there, it is good to see that there has been this incredibly unified stance. It's great to have seen the EU step up. It's great to have seen the EU, particularly with its refugee programme, and the idea that it's now said that it is going to be sending um, arms to, to Ukraine. It's closed down airspace to Russian airlines. It's kind of cracking down on Kremlin-sponsored media. I think it's been a chance for the EU to sort of really step up and show themselves as being strong, tough, coordinated and compassionate. And I do hope they let um, Ukraine join the EU very quickly as well. Hmm. Um, Arthur, are we on the verge of an EU army? And, and might that be a very good thing? We're going to need a trigger warning because I know that, you know, EU army is, is triggering language for some people, albeit probably sure, not. You know, those people will always be be triggered. <laughs> I mean, I was I, just before just before we came on air, I was looking at a Telegraph piece um, from quite literally two days ago that was going on about how the Chancellor, the German Chancellor cuts a pathetic figure and the EU have proved themselves to be toothless technocrats, um, words which I suspect they had to eat with their Sunday roast the next day. Could a coordinated EU defence strategy mesh with NATO's objectives or would they be sort of defence membership rivals? Are they compatible? I think it is possible for them to be compatible with some major caveats. So one is obviously it's a slightly different cast list. And within that, Turkey in recent years has been a problematic member of NATO. I don't need to tell you, Alex, about you know, no. Turkey's complicated <laughs> relationship with Greece, uh, who, which is, of course, both in NATO and, and, and the EU. Um, and then, of course, you've got the countries that aren't in NATO but are in the EU, like Sweden and Finland, who are now wondering whether they should be in NATO. So, but, but those, in a way, those are just details. And, of course, another detail which was there for decades was that as long as Britain was in the EU, the EU's attempts to develop its military capability was always being shot down by Britain. So some very major things have happened in, mm. in those two days since The Telegraph wrote its article. One is that Germany 
has doubled its defense budget. It's impossible to overstate the importance of that because Germany, as we all know, is the economic giant of Europe. Doubling anything in Germany is a very big number. So all of a sudden, one of the problems that, that the EU had was that the UK was always very against EU defense initiatives. Mm-hmm. And once you took the UK out of the picture, the other major military players in the EU collectively did not have a huge amount of resource to throw at these these challenges. So Italy, mm-hmm. France, particularly Spain to some extent, Germany to some extent. This is all going to change now, not just because of Germany, but because the general perception of what Europe has to do is changing. But you know, I want to try and give a straight answer to your question. No, I don't think that we are on the verge of an EU army, but I think what's been happening very slowly and imperceptibly, like the proverbial uh, oil tanker changing direction, is that in the long term, the US has been increasingly inwardly focused. You can no longer rely on the US for the defense of Europe. Equally, we've seen the rise of authoritarian disorder, both in Russia and and in other parts of of Europe's kind of near abroad. And it's not surprising that the countries of continental Europe are slowly, gradually, and perhaps not as quickly as some of us would like, building up their defense capability. But it's Mm. crises that create changes. And of course, that's, that's what Vladimir Putin has done. So ironically, for someone who, you know, funded the Brexit movement, uh, Putin has done wonders for EU integration. Um, Yasmin, Arthur just mentioned it. I think it's one of the most profound causes for optimism, in my view, has been the reaction of Europe, both at country and at EU level, to refugees from Ukraine. It's it's wholehearted and a generous response. And, and it makes the UK, I think, telling refugees to apply to come and pick fruit look mean and ludicrous, which it is. Do you think this had the potential to shift the dial in the UK on this issue? Do you think people are comparing the attitude and thinking, actually, we should be more open and more generous? Oh, I think it'll certainly, I think, draw a contrast. And look, I mean, you, you only had to look at the protests in, in London over the weekend, looking at all the people who have flocked to go donate supplies. You know, I, th- I think the British people want to help you, Ukraine and, and Ukrainians fleeing war. You know, I haven't seen any polling polling on this, but I would imagine that there would be quite a lot of support for Britain to sort of, you know, join their European partners and, and welcome um, Ukrainian refugees. You know, it's really, really, I mean, to your point, it's really nice to see European countries who, you know, many months ago had refugees on, on their borders from from other places who, who weren't as welcoming and to see that now that they're they're willing to do that willing to to kind of you know o- open their doors and, and help people and, and allow them um, to, to come in without wor- having to worry about visa issues I, I think that's um, incredibly moving and and hopefully a kind of a good forward step and sort of you know do you think there is a race dimension a lot of people have been pointing out that um, much of the narrative has been oh look these are these people are exactly like us they're white Christians. Do you think that plays into this? Undoubtedly. I mean, I think it's it's kind of been an undercurrent of, of the narrative. I mean, you just mentioned there have been, by my count, at least three um, broadcast journalists who have made reference to the fact that Ukraine is a quote-unquote civilized nation, that these are people who drive cars and watch movies and, you know, pretty kind of ludicrous comparisons. You know, I, I know that what they're trying to do 
is to communicate to their viewers in the U.S. and elsewhere that Ukraine is is a you know a, a pro Europe you know kind of Western country with 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 people just like just like you and I. But that could apply to people all over the world, um, people you know, with hopes and dreams and aspirations for democracy. I mean, it really doesn't matter um, that you know they they happen to be white or, or, or you know that they happen to be European. Um, so, so I think that is a dynamic, and you know, a, a lot of people that I've I've seen kind of have pointed out that there is this kind of structural racism that seems to underpin European border policies. We've seen hundreds of, of people dying in the Mediterranean trying to, to have better lives. Now, obviously, that doesn't, that is none of this is to say that Europe's approach to, to refugees from coming from Ukraine is, is a bad one. I think that we that that's a good standard. And, and you know, yeah. hopefully in, in future that that is something that will apply to, to refugees no matter the, their race or, or nationality or, or where they're coming from. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's an unavoidable. And that's kind of what's been, I think, a rather disappointing thing for, for people who, you know, who themselves have been affected by by some of these policies, who have family and friends who have been affected by these policies. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I, I hope that the UK um, would hopefully join in and, and do their bit. All in all, five, six days into this, if I compare the Johnson rhetoric at the start about Britain leading the world's response on this against concrete actions by the US and the EU, it seems to me that it is the UK that has undershot slightly. Aisha, do you think there is something that the government can do to get ahead of the curve again, to actually reclaim leadership in this? Well, I, I don't know, I possibly slightly disagree with you because, I mean, speaking to friends of mine who are Ukrainian in this, in this country, they've been very heartened by how Britain has, has done on this. Now, I think the issue of sanctions absolutely fell short sort of this time last week. But I think, to be fair, you know, more has been done since then, but definitely more could be done. And I think a lot needs to be done looking at those kind of ancillary businesses which are sort of aiding and abetting oligarchs right now. So I just think that I would, I'm would i slightly wary of that narrative. I think sometimes you have to sort of, well, you know, I have my own political bias against the government, but I'm just trying to look objectively. I, I don't think Ukraine is looking at Britain going, God, you're awful. I think you've done terribly. I really don't think that's right. Oh, no, because, I, because I, I, mean, I mean, I'm not underestimating the importance of the, the rhetoric at the start of this. I think it was important to state the case very clearly. And I think actually the Johnson government did very well to state the case very strongly. I just think the actions that have followed it haven't quite matched the expectations in many ways that it sets for it set for itself. You know, it's talking about legislation that will look, you know, underneath uh, company ownership maybe next year. And and the number of people is sanctioning is is really quite small, and its reaction to the refugee um, well, I think crisis the refugee has been quite equivocal. I think, I think the refugee crisis is the is the area. I think you know definitely more could be done on sanctions, but I do think the government has moved on that. It was absolutely terrible this time last week. They have moved. More can be done. Refugees is the big area that they are very very weak on. You know you had the absolutely ludicrous tweet from the minister saying that you know Ukrainians would be welcome if they were ready to sort of pick fruit and vegetables which is just absolutely beyond crass and insulting and uneducated and just 
vile. And that tweet's been taken down, but the minister's still doubling down on, on his comments. You've had this scheme for families open up, but of course the definition is incredibly narrow. You have to be a direct relative. Many people will want to send you know, nieces and nephews to aunties and uncles in, in this country. And of course, Pretty Patel has just this afternoon announced a scheme for um, around about 100,000 um, people from Ukraine that don't have family connections here. But let's be honest, you know, how confident are we that that's actually going to happen? We know with the Afghanistan um, programme and, uh, and other schemes that the, the Home Office and indeed the political will has not hmm. been there. So where I probably agree with you is this is the one area where I think, I think Boris Johnson has an opportunity because I, I actually think he, and I slightly say this through gritted teeth, I think he has done quite a good job on the international stage with, with the rhetoric, the visibility, all of that stuff. But if he, he if he, he's all, he should be using this to send a message to people like me who are very angry that we've left the EU to say, no, we will match the EU in terms of open heartedness and compassion and humanity. That would be an opportunity for him to show that actually Britain can be a global and sort of moral leader post-Brexit. And if they don't do that, then I think that's a big own goal. I mean, you even have very conservative Brexiteer commentators like Tim Montgomery coming out and saying, we are falling short on the refugee situation. Mm -hmm. Arthur, can I throw a big one your way to to end this um, portion of the conversation? Try me. What, what sort of Russia do we want? We, we have allowed the Putin regime to become synonymous with Russia, but the two are not the same as we're seeing. Is the West too comfortable with that bogeyman? Or is now the time actually to make an open and generous offer to Russia to form closer ties with Europe, to offer it a path back to the global community? Well, we definitely should have that option on the table. I think there are a few challenges to this, nevertheless. One is the Russian people, who of course have been exposed to decades of dis disinformation and increasingly sort of isolation. There is a strain of nationalism in Russian politics, which is by no means unique to Putin. So I think uh, we, we can't just sort of uh, assume that if, if he's out of the way, then it's just going to be like another big country sort of mm. a bit further east and, and you know, it'll all, it'll all be good. But cle equally clearly, there is a, a toxic clique with Putin and and the the so-called Siloviki, these are the you know the former KGB types running the show, that has really taken Russia into a very dark place. And there is something very fascistic about Russia's approach to Ukraine. Just for example, which I'm sure all of us have Russians that we know, and 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 people are very confused by this. You know, loads of Russians have Ukrainian cousins or have a uncle who married a Ukrainian or whatever. You know, it's never been this this extraordinary oppositional situation that mm. we're now in. I was talking to someone I know who is in touch with a lot of Crimean Russians, people who you might expect to be very pro-Putin in what's going on, and they're not at all happy with what's happening to Ukraine. So definitely Putin has taken, Putin and the clique around him have taken Russia a long way down a path that I don't think most Russians are happy with. And yes, Russian citizens, ordinary Russians, if such a thing exists, need to be given the opportunity to understand that nobody wants them to be in this position of isolation 
and objectification, because let's be honest, that is now becoming the norm. Now, Russia today is facing renewed scrutiny in Europe, with Poland, France and Germany all banning the station. Labour has called for RT to be banned in Britain. Aisha, some argue that banning RT would simply provide the Kremlin with a golden propaganda opportunity to paint the West as the truly liberal autocrats. What do you think? Yeah, I have heard this argument and I have heard another, you know, reasonable argument, which is, look, if we shut down Russia today, then Russia could shut down the BBC World Service, which arguably, you know, you want Russians to have access to in terms of getting, you know, true information and and proper information. I know lots of people be like, can you trust the BBC? It's like, literally, this is not (laughs) the time for that, for this argument. (laughs) However... However, I do think we have to make a, a stance on on this. I think this is a situation where you, you, you have to be very, very clear and unequivocal in um, your decisions. And I think the... The, the fact that the EU has has banned like any sort of Kremlin based uh, broadcast is really important. So I can see that there are some practical sort of arguments, but I I think you've got to make a strong choice on this. So I do think we should be shutting down Russia today, mm. especially Alex Sam. I love the way that Alex Sam was like, having cancelled my show, I've just paused it. Like that's going to sort of bring about some sort of ceasefire. <laughs> Um, I'm just hearing from the control room, yes, we have one, that Russia has just been suspended from all football worldwide by FIFA, all teams, national, international, the lot. Um, Sport has been another very surprisingly muscular uh, way uh, to put pressure on Russia. I think, again, quite a surprising uh, development. Um, Arthur... British Airlines, for instance, were banned immediately after Aeroflot was banned from UK airspace. Can we assume that the BBC would face repercussions if RT was shut down in Britain? And might that do more damage than good? Well, the BBC has already faced a lot of pressure. As we all know, some of their correspondents have been booted out of the country. Uh, it, the, there's been you know, restrictions on, on access to their um, broadcasts and so on. But of course, we live in a world where, especially for the tech-savvy younger generation, it's not that easy to make it impossible for people to access certain media. So I, I think whilst that's a reasonable question, I don't think that's a reason not to circumscribe our team. Mm. So where do you stand on this? Well, I, I think it's the, it's the right thing, but I think it needs to be done by Ofcom because it seems to be entirely reasonable and provable uh, that RT regularly breaks Ofcom regulations. I find it bizarre that they've been um, operating for as long as they have. That uh, One of the Chinese state TV channels was kicked out by Ofcom, I think, last year. So it, this shouldn't be, I think, such a, a difficult issue. I think Ofcom is often pulls its punches, but I don't see why it should here. I have to say, one of the strange uh, uh, thoughts that I've had over the last week, and there, there have been many, is, you know, I'm watching sort of Lavrov transmit live, um, you know, on all the 24-hour news stations, and his rants about, you know, Western pigs and all that. And, and I just think, had we had sort of 24-hour TV news, back in 1940, 
would we have suffered the idea of Goebbels just doing direct public addresses or on our national media, uh, unfiltered, as it were, all the time? It's a really, I mean, if you classify them as a, a kind of enemy state, which we are at the moment, yes. then why are there officials on our uh, national media? I don't, I don't fully get it. I, well, I think there's a whole sort of boiling frog situation with that, with the, the money laundering, the lawyers. You know, it, it shouldn't be socially acceptable to have a client who's a Russian oligarch, but half of professional London doesn't appear to be troubled by that. Yeah. So it seems to me that, you know, we've, we've ended up going down a certain tunnel uh, and, and we haven't quite realised how deep we are. And now we're sort of looking back and the light's very dim at the, the other end and thinking, oh, that, was this a good idea? I think we've just got to be honest about the amount of money laundering that's been done through London. I mean, it makes Ozark look particularly tame. <laughs> um, Yasmin, you come from a land where, is it fair to say partisanship in TV media is not uncommon? Um, what is the problem with being aware of the Russian viewpoint, provided it is clear what you're getting when you tune into RT? I mean, look, there's, of course, nothing wrong with understanding the Russian viewpoint. But I think that the problem with RT and Sputnik and the like is that they aren't providing a broader Russian, you know, the, the, the viewpoints of the Russian people. They're, they're effectively, you know, providing Kremlin talking points. And if I wanted to know what the Kremlin thinks, I could just go to their website and look at their statements and look to what <laughs> Putin says. I mean, I think that's the first thing. But the second thing is that, you know, Yes, obviously, any sort of in, informed media consumer could feasibly and does go to RT knowing that they are getting some sort of state-sponsored messaging. Um, but but the problem is that you know it's not just that RT propagates in delivering the, the Kremlin line; it's that they also tend to spread a lot of disinformation, um, and mm. and I think that is where the the trouble and the risk comes in, right? Because then yes. you know you, you kind of have to to say you know is this causing more harm than good. And I, and I think that's where the debate around, you know, sort of what to do with the RT here. I mean, I don't know what the RT's viewership numbers are like here. One could make the, the argument that the Aisha reference, which I also thought was quite compelling that, you know, it's more important to make sure that Russians, ordinary Russians can get the BBC than it is to to prevent however many handful of, of Brits tune into RT here. Um, that said, to Arthur's point, Russia has not made being a, an independent or foreign journalist easy. Um, you know, I've reported on how they have uh, basically been trying to run um, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, which is um, funded, though not editorially controlled by the United States. Um, they've been trying to run them out of the country um, for quite a while now. Mm, so yeah. um, th there are some pockets of that media that do exist in Russia, but it's certainly not easy for them to do so. So, um, you know, and, and I don't think that's going to change whether RT is here or not. Yeah, I, I heard someone refer to Internet Russia versus TV Russia, the latter being the older generations and more rural communities who get their news almost exclusively from state media, and, and that makes uh, state TV incredibly influential in Russia. Uh, uh, Arthur, one of the effects of the crisis has been to expose sort of Putin-friendly media puppets. Um, we have prominent commentators refusing to condemn 
Putin's actions last week. Farage is an example. Does this put a new gloss on the culture wars? Do you think they have frittered away quite a lot of their um, credibility with their crowd by refusing to condemn this obviously indefensible thing? You've got to hope so. And, and I think if you look at North America, where sadly this stuff is often more, um, you know, uh, more accelerated, it is, it is bizarre to see Fox News giving platforms to people who are just, you know, feverishly <laughs> putting out the Kremlin line. And, and I, obviously, you know, the, the people at Fox News are, are the best judge of what's good for Fox News. But it's hard to imagine that a, a traditional conservative American is desperate to be told how bad it is that Ukraine is defending itself from from a foreign invasion by Russia. I mean, it's just it's it's hard to get your head inside that thinking and and imagining it applying. I think one of the things to hold on to in terms of this question about RT and others is not so much the influence of the channels themselves, but the way that they act as part of a supply chain of fake information that ends up actually landing in mainstream media. And I've, yeah. I've, seen, I've read research that looks at how articles in, in mainstream, albeit usually right-wing platforms, uh, and, and I, you, know, you, can, you can imagine what they are, but they include the Daily Mail and the Spectator and so on. They're often stories that started life in a Russian-sponsored fringe uh, you know, outlet mm. and, have, and have basically been laundered through various means, and, and then they end up being part of the sort of pro-Kremlin narratives here in the West. So I think if if this crisis allows us to become a little bit more grown up and uh, critical of the way this happens, that's going to be a very valuable thing. I'd say the, the consensus of the panel is the rules are there, apply them. And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's now time for the panel's escape routes. We wanted to keep this feature in because this week, more than any, it is needed. What are the films, TV shows, music, books, miscellaneous activities that have given our panellists some respite? How about you, Aisha? Well, I've actually managed to squeeze in some quite good uh, culture. I went to see the exhibition at the British Museum about Stonehenge, which is absolutely fantastic. And it's um, the the kind of big takeaway was that even all of those thousands and thousands of years ago, people travelled and connected all across the United Kingdom and across Europe um, and (laughs) beyond. Um, So I really enjoyed it. Highly, highly, highly recommend it. It's really beautifully curated. And I've been loving the marvellous Mrs Maisel. I'm like obsessed with that TV show on Amazon Prime. Very funny about a woman who starts doing kind of stand-up later in life, a woman after my own heart. Love it. Brilliant. Um, How about you, Arthur? Uh, Well, at at risk of um, falling into (laughs) a certain stereotype, the uh, Six Nations... You've been reading a book about war, have you? No. (laughs) Yes, Six Nations Rugby. So it's an opportunity to watch people get together and knock seven bells out of each other. But the difference is it's in an organised game environment and therefore uh, is rather better than warfare. And the thing about uh, the Six Nations is, you know, it is incredibly exciting. There's not much that separates the top three teams. Uh, It's a sport in which, you know, England, France and Ireland are all peers effectively and and Scotland and Wales not that far behind. Uh, Sadly, Italy are a little bit of a long way behind. Um, 
And uh, you don't even have to like rugby to like the Six Nations. That's what I would say. Okay, I'm all for warfare when they wear shorts. Exactly. Um, <laughs> how about you? How about you, Yasmin? Um, well, I just want to co-sign that. I, I would not say that I'm a sporty person at all, but I've been enjoying watching the Six Nations. So I <laughs> would, would recommend. Um, so, I mean, I admittedly haven't had that many escapes from politics the last couple of weeks. However, I have recently gotten my hands on a test, like study book for the Life in the UK test, um, which I think... I will need to take at some point this year as I'm coming up on five years living in this wonderful country. So I have to study for that. So if anyone has any study tips, anything at all like that, please do get in touch because I'm, I'm, I'm really low. I heard it's quite difficult. So I'm not, I'm not looking forward to that. I kind of wanted it to be like really practical questions for living in Britain. Like how does one make tea? Is it like jam or cream first on a scone? Things like that. Things you actually need to know. Well, they couldn't deal with uh, uh, questions as divisive as whether jam or cream comes <laughs> first. <laughs> yes, I mean, that, that's your first lesson. Um, I've been watching a, a, a very sui generis thing on Amazon Prime called Forever with uh, Fred Armisen and Maya Rudolph of SNL stock uh, by the 30 rock creators it's not quite a comedy it's not quite a drama and it uh, it has appended my expectations of what it is at the end of every single of the first three episodes i've seen i think it's going in one direction and then it takes a very sharp turn so that's been very entertaining but if you want to know more about uh, if you want to develop your understanding about the situation in ukraine then it's not strictly speaking an escape route, but I would also recommend Winter on Fire, uh, a documentary on Netflix about the Euromaidan protests uh, that really opened my eyes to a lot of aspects of this that I wasn't um, familiar with. And that's the end of this week's bunker. Thanks to Aisha Hazarika. Thank you very much. To Arthur Snell. Thanks for having me. And to Yasmin Serhan. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. And watch out for a live from Kiev Bunker special with ex-BBC journalist John Sweeney, who's on the ground there right now, coming very soon. If you like what we're doing, then you can help us keep doing it by supporting us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was presented by Alexandreou with Arthur Snell, Yasmin Saran and Isha Hazarika. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The group editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich and me, the former RTUK journalist, Alex Reese. My flatmate's just quit his job there, so if anyone's hiring. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>